Hello, my name's James Troopany. You might remember me from such podcasts as The Troopany Show. <laughs> and The Troopany Show channel. And The Wrestling Rewind. And, 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 oh, Daily Squash. And, uh, Wrestling Histories with Finn Martin. And various other things I've done in podcast years. Yeah, it's me. Um, the Troopany Show this week is a little bit strange. Uh, if you listened to last night's Today at the G1, you will understand why I was supposed to record with Mr. Marcus Green of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Marcus is unfortunately held up in Baton Rouge, and there is a massive power cut thanks to hurricane season. So he won't be able to join me for today's show. So I'm going to go back into the archive and present to you Hot Night and Baimu from World Wrestling Council with an alternate commentary from me. Because the original commentary was dreadful, and I recorded this whilst I was waiting for Dara, because he didn't get back to me on when he could record something. So I thought I'd best do it anyway to put it in the can as an afternoon to myself. The results of which are here. So take care, and before the music goes, dun 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 dun, dun, dun have a good week, and I'll see you next week. It's the True Penny Show with your host James True Penny. Hello and welcome to Tribute Show. My name is James Tribute. This is my show. As you can probably tell, I'm on my own today, and I want to do something different. Um, I was supposed to record the show with Dara or, or John, but no one was available or anyone else. And I've had a show in mind for a long time. A show I've wanted to do for a long time. So, I, as you know, I hate doing solo shows by myself because I find them a bit boring. Why do I just write it down and make it into an article? So today, as an experiment, and give us your feedback, there is about 3,000 or 4,000 of you who listen to this show, tell us what you think. I'm going to do an alternative commentary to a show, um, which I've wanted to look at for a long time, because it covers Puerto Rican wrestling, which has a dark history and a not very nice history, um, but I think it's important that we look at that particular history. So I've got my Mac and I've got my iPad, and I've got various sources of information that we can use. So I've got various tight lines of information I can use for this particular show. So let's go start. What I'm going to do is I'm going to do this commentary. And you will hear me say, Mark. And that's when the actual show will start and I will press play. Um, and then... I will watch the show and I'll give you my commentary on the show with various facts about various things and what I think of the show and it, it's a, it's an interesting show to say the least. As I said, it's World Wrestling Council. It's from the 80s, so this is pre-Bruiser Brody incident um, and it, it's well worth a watch. The, the show is called NWA WCW Wrestling, A Hot Night in Bayamone. Uh, 1988 Fire Match, that's the name of the YouTube video, which I will link to on the when I post this on social media. So I'm going to say, Mark. And now the show has started. Now the show is presented by Bart Batten, Hugo Savanovich, and Brad Batten. You may know Hugo Savanovich. He was the uh, Spanish announcer for the WWE for many, many years. And there was a long connection between WWE and... Uh, uh, Puerto Rican wrestling, especially later in the 1990s when the IWA returned. But during this time period, Sir WWC was where it was at as far as Puerto Rican wrestling was concerned. Puerto Rican wrestling had been around for a long time, but the capital sports 
um, the company that really owned WWWC, or the World Wrestling Council, as a promotion, was founded in 1973 by Carlos Colon, Victor Havikia, and Gorilla Monsoon. Yes, that Gorilla Monsoon. It's not a particularly long flight from New York down to uh, Puerto Rico, and Gorilla invested in that particular company as a promoter, and he stayed with the promoter for promotion for a long while. Um, uh, and <coughs> the uh, Gorilla Monsoon stayed with the company until 1988, um, all the way through up until his WWE run. So this will be the last year, maybe just the end of his time with the w WWC uh, as a promoter and as an owner. But undoubtedly, the creative talent and force behind the company was Carlos Colon, who was the key draw and the champion of this particular event. Now, this anniversary show, Anniversario in 88 as it's called, starts with the Wild Samoans versus Rufus R. Freight Chain Jones and, of course, your Jimmy Valiant, who had worked together in uh, the territory, uh, sorry, the... who'd worked together in the Charlotte area for Jim Crockett for many years and were big draws in Charlotte. Jimmy Valiant using his Boogie Woogie Man gimmick, which is kind of a, a little of a bit of appropriated Nufus R. Freight Train Jones with his kind of Soul Man gimmick. So they're well matched together, though. You wouldn't get away with it in this day age, <laughs> to be honest with you. The Wild Samoans, who kind of always played on the wild part of their persona in the majority of their career, at this bit, a bit, a bit older. It's Afro and Seeker, as in the famous WWF World Tag Team Champions. And Afro and Seeker are kind of getting on in their age a little bit, so they're a bit slower than they used to be, and they're kind of relying on heel tactics. It's no longer the, you know, the wild Samoans, the savages, though they are wrestling barefoot and the gear that they always wear, and they, of course, have got their full-out hair, and they're Samoans. They're as tough as they come. Um... <laughs> Uh, the ring itself is a 18 foot by the looks of things, but noticeably it's sponsored by mainstream advertisers. It's sponsored by Miller, Miller, Miller Beer and Coca-Cola. This is the kind of thing that wouldn't happen in North America exactly. Match starts off with uh, Jimmy Valiant and Rufus R. French Jane Jones jumping the Samoans to get started off on the matchup. Um, big kind of brawling opening to the match. One of the reasons why I'm also doing a commentary on the match is because the original commentary on the YouTube version of this is by the Batten Twins, who are dreadful. <laughs> and Hugo Spanovich does his best, but it is, uh, it is an awful commentary where three people try and get themselves over at the expense of the wrestling. Jimmy Valiant and Rufus Freight Train Jones very happy with their success there as they send the Samoans to the outside to the floor and the referee tries to count things down. This match is a very much kind of like setting the stem stage for a big crowd. I'm not exactly where sure we are in this. I'll find out where... Because the, the arena show was kind of taped in two or three different places. So we will be seeing what happens uh, as we go through it. Samoa's taking powder to the outside and trying to recover as the referee talks to Rufus and, of course, Jimmy Valiant. Referee Samoans trying to call for a timeout, get back into the ring. Um, and Jimmy Valiant trying to pump up the crowd. 
getting people moving as the Samoans are complaining about what's going on. So the 1988 card was held in Bayamoon, Puerto Rico at the Ruben Rodriguez Coliseum and the Juan Herman Laborel Coliseum. 23,000 people in attendance. This was not a small affair. Uh, and this wasn't the first match on the card. The openers were Dutch Mantel. He defeated Pez Watley. They were both uh, wrestlers from the... Well, Dutch Mantel was famous in the Puerto Rican region. It's one of his home territories. And Pez Watley had spent a fair amount of time in the the Deep South. Um, and then Mike Graham defeated Don Kent, also in a match. Don Kent was, uh, I think he was of the, the uh, Kangaroos tag team at one point. Mike Graham was the son of uh, Eddie Graham, uh, the Florida promoter, and was really heavily involved in WCW. Probably passed away a couple of years ago. Anyway, back to our match. Jimmy Valiant on top again. He's low-blowed, I think, Affa, and just nails Seeker on the outside. And it, it's kind of a standard 80s wrestling match. There's not a lot to it, really. It's a proper tag team heels match. This kind of explains what's going on with this style of wrestling really, really well. Which, when you're trying to do a big show, which has got some crazy stuff on it later on, this is the kind of thing you need. You need something fairly subtle. You need something that's going to, well, unsubtle, that's in your face. It's going to tell the story of what's going to happen on a wrestling card. Okay, it can't be too easy. Uh... Jimmy Valiant discovering that Afrin Seeker have really hard heads. That was another Samoan trait, which is still kind of part of the deal today. But of course, Rufus has the hardest head of all, which is uh, a racial play one doesn't really like to see, because it just implies that they're boneheaded and savages because they're not white. And Jimmy Valiant is therefore the only, you know, um, what's the word? Um civilized man amongst the four of them but Rufus is a house on fire Rufus our freight train Jones was probably most famous as a jobber in the New York territory for Vince McMahon he wrestled Mayan Mike Sharp at uh, Madison Square Garden for like 400 times in the 1980s he would swap them back and forth but this was probably his main biggest main event run I believe he was the America's champion in Mid-South in uh, the Charlotte Georgia region uh, sorry the Charlotte region which was kind of a mid-card title. Uh, and he was a popular attraction. He was kind of very similar in appeal to the Junkyard Dog and that uh, black babyface, African-American babyface kind of style of the 1980s. Um, and, yeah, he was he was a good wrestler when, when he got going. And this is kind of pretty much what the WWF were doing in the late 1970s. All of these wrestlers were spending time in the WWF at, at one point in the early, late 70s to early 80s especially Jimmy Valiant. Jimmy and Johnny Valiant were former WWF Tag Team Champions. Of course, the Samoans were record Tag Team Champions three times. Um, and Rufus was kind of someone who didn't really get over in New York and was uh, kind of a jobber over there. We're getting a lot of uh, heel tactics here. He's pulling the hair, referee. Well, I mean, they're complaining about it. I, I don't think he was because, you know, it's, it's Rufus, he's a nice guy, but it is intriguing, like the Samoans are kind of working like a traditional tag team. This pace is a lot slower, they're doing a lot of the storytelling development of what a tag team match is supposed to look like, and giving the fans plenty to cheer about with minimal effort. This is kind of unusual for like a Puerto Rican tag team match, because as we'll see later on when the stories get a bit more bigger, there's a lot of heat. There's so many fans in this arena, there is so many fans watching this particular matchup that it's hard not to understand 
you know, it's hard to have uh, to understand how a match is working like this with no real kind of heat to it. It's just kind of a match. And when you see things later on, you have to bear in mind Puerto Rico was a hard territory for wrestlers to be involved in. You know, they they used to have to put shields around the entranceways when they worked in baseball stadiums so the, the heel wrestlers didn't have things thrown at them. There were regular riots. They were bloodthirsty fans. Uh, and this is just a nice, gentle wrestling match. And it's very much like a North American tag team match, like you would see in Charlotte or you would see in the WWF. Um, and it's interesting to watch because... For me, Puerto Rico's kind of a netherworld. You know, it's not really... Uh, oh, Seacrest just put Rufus on the ground with a knee to the groin there. Um, this is not really like Lucha Libre, even though the majority of it is announced in Spanish. The Obviously, the fans speak Spanish. This is very much about the international language of wrestling. It looks like a North American wrestling com company. The wrestlers are mainly North American wrestlers, and they wrestle in a North, uh, uh, sorry, North America, a U.S. or Canadian style. The lucha libre element tends to come from the culture. So there's this crossover of guys who are having American style matches with this lucha libre culture that's going on around them. Jimmy Valiant tagging in with a hot tag. It wasn't really a hot tag because Rufus didn't really have an awful lot of time on the defensive. <laughs> But Jimmy is swinging for the fences as he does. And, you know, Samoans are actually trying to follow the rules. It's Jimmy who's breaking the rules. But it's okay because it's Jimmy Boogie Woogie Man Valiant. Still wrestling from what I understand, by the way, Jimmy Valiant. Because he looked about 80 then and this was 32 years ago. <laughs> but he was kind of at the peak of his powers. Just before this, about three or four years before this, he'd had his big run in Charlotte with the great Kabuki where he'd lost a lose-a-leaves town match and came back as uh, the Boogie Woogie Man. Oh, Charlie Brown, that was it. Charlie Brown, who wrestled very similar to Jimmy Valiant and had moves like Jimmy Valiant and had the same night, same sleeper finisher, Goodnight Irene, as Jimmy Valiant. Uh, that, that was a standard mistaken identity, Southern promotion kind of thing. Uh, and it worked really, really well. And it drew a lot of money. The great Kabuki versus uh, Jimmy Valiant was a classic matchup, the big babyface versus the mysterious foreign wrestler. Um, I remember watching it. It was around about the same time as some big angles in North Carolina. You also had Harley Race and Ric Flair, the Flair for the Gold feud, which happened around about the same time. So Jimmy Valiant was back to kind of being Jimmy Valiant in this particular run. And he was a big name internationally. Colt Cabana interviewed him. was one of the last people to do when The Art of Wrestling was still an interview show. He wanted to interview Jimmy Valiant before he finished. And he had the opportunity to. And it sounded really, really cool. Um, Jimmy Valiant told a lot of stories about his wrestling career. Uh, funnily enough, um, Puerto Rico was a good hotbed for wrestlers who were... What's the word? They're, they're, uh, um... I think there's somebody who studied Pro Wrestling Illustrated. It may have been Stu Stacks, actually. Retirement of Stu Stacks. That's really cool. Hope he does a nice retirement. He once said that, you know, Puerto Rico was the last option. Nobody wanted to work there. And that was basically because of the Bruiser Brody thing. But before Bruiser, it was a really good payday because the crowds were massive. I, I was reading Alan Cheapshot's Twitter account this morning. Before the WWE expansion, there were three or four hundred shows a year that had ten or thousand more fans. And that just doesn't happen anymore. You've got Wrestle Kingdom at the beginning of the year. Um, you've got WrestleMania and regular house show events for the WWE. 
And you've got Arena Mexico. That happens pretty much every week, and that's nearly 10,000. And there's a couple of AAA shows that will get over 10,000, like Triple Mania. But there aren't many shows that will do big, big numbers like this. This was a big thing, you know, bear in mind the other matches and promotions you had going on. Jimmy Valiant got the hot tag. He's now on house on fire as he goes after the Samoans. So, you know, this was a big show, and it was a big part of the wrestling industry, the Anniversario shows. Um, look at the crowds that they got. And there's some big matches imported from North America for this. You know, one of the big feuds in 1983 was Carlos Colon versus Abdullah the Butcher, which made it onto the Starcade Supercard. Each office in the NWA was asked to present a, show, a showcase match of their work rate, and they chose Abdullah the Butcher versus Carlos Colon. Uh, I, and it, it was just in a straight up brawl. They didn't put any uh, technicalities on it just because they had Harley Race versus Ric Flair in a cage. And let's be honest with that. Oh, the Samoans get disqualified as Jimmy Valiant is thrown over the top rope. And that signals the end of that match, which was a match that really didn't do anything for either Jimmy Valiant, <laughs> Rufus Arthur, Frame Jones, or the Samoans. It just kind of happened. It was there. It was the thing. And, and that was good. So that's our first matchup on this particular card. So then we're moving on to uh, Ricky Santana versus Mr. Pogo. Now, Ricky Santana and Mr. Pogo were uh, an interesting matchup. They had already had like a big feud over this Puerto Rican heavyweight championship. Ricky Santana is an uh, incredibly flip-looking man with the most glorious mullet, shaved at the sides. And, um, yeah, it just he just looks very good. He's also an exceptionally technical wrestler, but there will be no exceptional technical wrestling in this particular matchup. This one is entirely about violence. <laughs> Proper violence. So, Mr. Pogo is accompanied by, well, he doesn't actually say here, but his manager, Masked Gentleman Dazaro, I think his name was, Mr. Gold. But Pogo isn't the same Pogo we know from the FMW days. We've talked a lot about Mr. Pogo in the past uh, and his relationship with that Sushi Anita. Here he's taking a hell of a beating from Ricky Santana, who's a fired-up babyface. One of the reasons why this works so well is there's such a pool of talent on the independents. And in the time, well, they aren't really independents, it's the territories. But the territories were really good wrestlers. Ricky Santana as a fired-up babyface is an excellent choice. You know, he's a great mid-card wrestler. Um, goes for the body slam. Going up to the second rope early. He's got the advantage and he's pressing it home. A brilliant story to tell to start the matchup. The young baby face on top against the shocked veteran. Now, Pogo had had a varied career after going on excursion from New Japan in the early 1970s. He went to Stampede to work with under Stu Hart. And another Stampede uh, wrestler, uh, Kendo Nagasaki not the British Kendo Takasaki, the Japanese Kendo Nagasaki, was also tagged with him and they won the World Wrestling Council World Tag Team Championships around about this time or a couple of months before. Pogo is kind of pacing around to the ring. He gets back in the ring and now he's going to try and figure out his way to get past Santana if he can. It's very much kind of like he's actually a better wrestler in this particular... Uh, oh, I guess a... Fingers to the throat, which will always work on your opponent. Uh, he's a much better wrestler in this particular layout just because he's, um, you know, he's thinner. <laughs> and he's lost a lot of weight in comparison to where he was earlier uh, in his career. 
he's looking good actually. Big chop into the chest there, which is something you kind of saw him doing later, but he didn't have the flexibility that he does here. Now he's on top and doing what he does best, the dominant performance. Mr. Pogo, big influence on Chris Books and the modern deathmatch wrestlers. Um, and I'm sure they'd seen matches like this where his bread and butter was being a dominant wrestler, being a dominant brawler. He has this style about him. He has a certain sense of menace about him, even though he looks a bit ridiculous, to be honest. Wrestling barefoot in uh, with kick pads. I suppose it must have been the early days of kick pads for non-Japanese wrestlers. Uh, certainly Akira Maeda had uh, popularized kick pads in Japan. And by this time, even the, the women wrestlers were wearing kick pads. So, you know, he's uh, kind of on the cutting edge. Also, interestingly, is the security guards, which are the local police, or possibly uh, army, circulating whilst carrying crackle pods. That'll tell you what this crowd is like and how heated they are. The, the, the soldiers actually have cattle prods in their hands. They may be cattle prods and they may be just batons, but certainly they have weapons out ready to defend the wrestlers so the matches can go ahead. Uh, the actual ring is upon a platform so everyone can see it in the arena. And this is an arena, by the way. Uh, there is a couple of spots in this arena. This, uh, the two arenas that they use, uh, this is to kind of like raise things up and make things easier to see. Uh, and so they can sell more tickets because this is a sellout. They were both sellouts. 23,000 people into two different arenas for the two different matches. So Ricky Santana pulls Pogo back into the ring, back on top now, uh, and flying with fists and rearing his hands back to throw fists, throw some more fists. This is a classic babyface kind of performance. He's after Pogo. He doesn't just want to beat him. He wants to damage him. He wants to defend his championship in style. Now, big forearm to the face. Santana is driving Pogo into the head first into the top turnbuckle. And now he starts to pour on some big maneuvers. Big chop to the chest in the corner. Irish whip. And follows him in with a big splash. But lands face first. The selling in this, by the way, is excellent. It does look incredibly realistic. And they sell for each other so well. You're going to get a bit of mixed sports of commentary and a bit of mixed shoot style commentary in this. Pogo is, of course, uh, such a supreme wrestler when he's on top. Going back to chops and cheating whilst the referee is talking to his manager. Misses the big chop. Ricky Santana comes across. Sunset flip. And the referee doesn't see it. One, two. Oh, kicks out. Pogo against the, and there's more debris thrown into the ring. Literally every time the heel gets one second ahead, the fans throw stuff in the ring. Pogo in there with a big boot. Stalking the ring and stalking Ricky Santana as he pulls him up to his feet. Neckmare. And going in for an elbow drop. He's going to go oh, leg drop. Oh no, just a kick to the face. Thought he was being fancy. Production values in this are exceptionally good, by the way. It's it's 80s TV production, but of course the big TV channels carried these shows. So they used the highest quality TV production values they could. Big rake of the face by Pogo. Now he's got fingers in the nose and the face. Yanks the face across. The referee telling Pogo to back up and leave, the, leave it alone. As we know, that's probably virtually impossible. Big choke in the corner from Pogo. Gets to a four count. Let's go. Irish whip to Santana into the ropes. Pogo comes in with a spinning back kick. Again, something you didn't see to do. He did it kind of with a rotation as he got older and didn't have as much flexibility. 
And now he's in the guard mounted position and is throwing in left at right hands on Santana and smashing his head on the floor. This is just about as basic as Pogo gets. You know, he's a violent, violent man and he lives up to that reputation with everything he does. And he's not really pulling those punches of those tape fists. He's stamping on the floor, so they are looking very, very good and he must have been very, very tight and snug with them. But this is excellent work from Pogo. Big rake of the face. And Pogo is getting to his feet now as Santana climbs out the corner. Another big kick to the face. Big Yakuza kick. Picking up Santana and going for a nerve hold. Nerve holds are kind of like the classic oriental wrestler kind of thing. It's it's mysterious. It's martial arts. It's, it's, it's bad for the western people. Again, it's racism on a base level. But a nerve hold is the heel thing to do. You don't let, like, you know, submissions are a heel thing to do generally. It's not really something that baby faces are supposed to do. I mean, these days we kind of have baby face wrestlers who definitely do do it. But generally back in the day, it was kind of a heel thing to do because, or the heel would get the advantage and spend more time in uh, holding on a submission than a baby face would, certainly. Santana making the big comeback now, getting to his feet, shaking off his fists. And elbow to the stomach as Pogo's backed into the corner. Breaking free. Goes to the ropes, running, but it gets cut off by Pogo with a big chop. Pogo going for the pinfall. One, two, and Ricky Santana kicks out. The local faves are fans are going wild for Ricky Santana. He's a good looking young man and a really good baby face and a good wrestler. I would strongly advise you looking up some of his stuff. Also on this card, there's some big violence that's going to happen later on this card. So these two are trying to keep things calm without going over the top because it does tend to do kind of detract from what's happening in the main event if somebody else bleeds like a stuck pig, as you can probably imagine. So Pogo's climbing to the top rope now, or the second rope. Going for the big elbow drop. Oh! But Ricky Santana gets his feet up and puts two feet into his... Sensitive regions, I believe is the phrase. Santana climbing to his feet very gingerly. Pogo selling the what happened to his unfortunate genitals. <laughs> and then, of course, you go to a big wide shot of the fans and Pogo's manager. Um, Santana, glubber's wrists, thumping down his chest. And Pogo tries to run away because he knows what's coming. The big comeback from Santana. This is the closest thing to a big like North American comeback I've seen in such a long time. Like the Hulk Hogan style comeback. Knees to the chest, kicks to the chest. Pinfall. One. Oh, just the one. Picks up Pogo. And then starts laying in fists from the mounted position. This is ideal like magazine camera work. And there's so many cameramen around this. I'm guessing there's a few people from uh, Pro Wrestling Illustrated who are taking pictures at this point. Or independent photographers. Ricky Santana having a go at Mr. Pogo's manager. But this is a excellent, heated, well-watched, worth-it wrestling event, wrestling matchup. Big spin kick out of the corner as Pogo manages to take the bump. Toast of the pinfall. Kick out from Ricky Santana. Santana coming to his feet. Pogo's in control now as Pogo goes in for a body slam. Gets to his feet. Goes to the corner. He's been looking for a big move off the corner for this whole match and has not managed to land it yet. Goes in with a splash, and again, Santana is not there. Pogo is lying flat on his back. Santana comes to his feet as the fans start throwing stuff, even when Ricky Santana's in charge now. Cover, 
kick out on one. Fans are fully behind Ricky Santana as he picks him up for a body slam, calls for the top rope, and climbs to the top rope. Dives and misses himself, so that's two big body splashes off the top rope that have been missed. Pogo comes in with a Cobra clutch hold, but Santana is holding it off. He knows the Cobra clutch is the end of the match. It's his finishing hold. He's managed to get his arms in the way. Big punch to the stomach, big punch to the face, Irish whip. Pogo comes off with a right hand into the throat as he misses the Irish whip. Pinfall on a two count for Pogo on Santana. And he picks up Santana for the suplex. Santana blocks him. Santana blocks him again. And he reverses the suplex. These guys have been working hard and it's been a heated matchup so far for the last 10 minutes or so. Pogo kicks out on two. Santana stays on him. Big side headlock. Pogo throws him into the ropes. Throws him into the other ropes and then throws him outside the ring. Now we might get a bit of respite for both wrestlers. This has been going at a hell of a pace for a long while. You do wonder how they kept up this pace, considering the, I guess it's adrenaline. This is a big match for both of them, and it means an awful lot to their careers for both of them to get on well in this matchup. Santana on the ropes now. There's Pogo. Football tackles him back to the ground. Referee counting on Santana as he tries again to get back into the ring. Sunset flip over the top rope for Santana as he comes in, Pogo coming in too early, and it's a three count. And your winner, and still Puerto Rican champion, is Ricky Santana. Excellent match it. The fans absolutely love this. It's going wild for Santana. And this is the thing. Puerto Rico is a kayfabe territory. Even to this day, you know, the fans are known for being harsh. I'm not into it from a... a shoot point of view but the audience truly believes in wrestling Pogo's coming now to attack Ricky Santana and get the Cobra clutch on him the way he wanted to before he's got Santana in the dreaded sleeper hold of course made popular by Sergeant Slaughter and he's bringing uh, Santana down a peg or two as uh, Pogo's manager comes in the ring and keeps talking with the referee as uh, Pogo keeps holding on to that Cobra clutch. The referee trying to break things up. And of course the referee is now suspending Pogo and getting rid of him. The Batten Twins come and help uh, Ricky Santana. And that was that really interesting matchup. It was much more interesting than when I first saw it. I thought that like this technical wrestler like Ricky Santana and a brawler like Mr. Pogo wouldn't be able to put something together that was quite so viable. But it was an excellent matchup, and a lot of it is to do with the way that they're doing it. Santana now is perhaps overselling. He's got some foam pouring out of his mouth. But that's the kind of lengths they used to go to. It looks like, I can't figure out how he's doing it. It must be bicarbonate of soda that's foamed up on his mouth. Because you, you wouldn't feel that from, like, you know, just being choked. You just pass out. Oh. However, this is... Uh, a lot of fun to watch as Santana recovers and the Baton Twins look after him and bring him back to consciousness. Uh, yeah, Baton Twins were a good-looking tag team. They were the world tag team champions in WWC at the time. 
Uh, Ricky Santana does look a state with whatever is coming out of his mouth. I'm hoping it's not poisonous. <laughs> but it looks a bit... It's like he's done shaving foam in his mouth. Oh, they're bringing out the stretcher. Always cool. Uh, referees helping wrestlers out on stretchers who clearly do not need to be stretched. They just need to be walked off properly. They do, I, this one of the things is like modern days these days, they, they hire an EMT team or they put, put someone in an EMT uniform. Whereas these guys were probably just like, oh no, we've got, we've got genuine EMTs there. They're trying to get them into the hospital. Um, I'm hoping they smarten the ambulance drivers up and they aren't just taking them off to hospitals who takes up an open bed because quite clearly... That shouldn't have happened. So the band twins take on Les Pastores Nueva New Zealander, uh, or better known to you and me as the New Zealand Sheep Herders. That'll be your bushwhack. And that's your next match on Anniversario 88. So next we have Mark, well, Brad and, Brad and, I can't remember, the band twins, their names. What are they? Get it right. The band twins, that would be... Yeah, doesn't actually say. <laughs> Brad and Bart, that's the one. Identical twins, they are genuinely identical twins as well. Um, in fact, incredibly similar, like scarily, eerily similar. Um, let's see, uh, what did they do? So, this was, they, they were already tag team champions at this point, and they'd had a long career in... In Memphis, uh, but not in Jerry Jarrett and Jerry Lawler's Memphis, but actually in uh, the ICW promotion in the same area run by Lanny Poffo and Randy Savage, of course, under the auspices of Angelo Poffo. Angelo Poffo actually trained the brothers in the Outlaw promotion. Um, they were good amateur wrestlers. They were really great physiques. Um, and were good at TV production. They were kind of ahead of their time. They, they understood how production worked. They understand how to present themselves on television. They have got the most glorious matching mullets. It, it's, it's just a sight to see. It just is just is feathered and lethal. Uh, also, noticeably, hairy-chested and didn't shave. And across the ring we have, of course, Luke and Butch. The New Zealand Sheepherders. Now, the Sheepherders at the time were not yet the Bushwhackers. In fact, they weren't the Bushwhackers for quite some time. Um, they were still the New Zealand Sheepherders, and they were about to go to the WWE. But before they went to the WWE, they were actually considered one of the best tag teams in the world. Hard to believe. They did their shtick with the flag, which they stole wholesale from the Australian Kangaroos, and kind of took it on. The New Zealand royal family uh, would later adapt it for their own needs as well. That was Jack Vittery and um, various other partners. Uh, Lord Littlebrook, who was another New Zealander as well, would manage them. The New Zealand militia, that was it. Jack, um, Jack Vittery and uh, Rip Morgan. Rip Morgan was the actual New Zealander. <laughs> Jack Vittery was about as New Zealand. He was the flag carrier for the sheep herders for a long while. Um, they had big runs in, of course, um, they had big runs in uh, Mid-South, uh, in uh, Bill Watts' territory, um, especially with the Fantastics. In fact, they quit the Mid-South territory because Bill Watts had booked them something like 26 nights straight, 26 nights straight in a cage, barbed wire cage match, and they were kind of sick of it, uh, and for the good of everybody, decided to quit. The Batons are an energetic tag team. 
who start the match off with a double drop kick after the sheep herders have kind of kicked things off. And the fans hate the sheep herders. They're right. They absolutely hate them. They're there is debris being thrown into the ring. Uh, we've got the starts of the sh the shoulder movement. It's like it's like they're wanting to be bushwhackers. The bushwhacker arm swinging thing has kind of kind of looked like it's going to start. Uh, this was a bushwhacker idea, by the way. It was Luke and Butch who came up with those days. Luke, of course, these days is still in Puerto Rico. He's uh, a booker for WWC. He spent a lot of time down there. Uh, writing television, him and Dutch Mantel, uh, and loves his life in Puerto Rico. Collar and elbow tie from Luke onto one of the Batten twins. I'm not even going to try and figure out which one's which. Um, throwing punches, and Luke's backed off into the corner. This is a classic babyface performance, of course. You want to try and get your babyfaces over as strong performers who don't need the help. And then I have a feeling the sheep herders might have some nefarious means to get by. Oh, there you go. Straight fingers to the throat. Which isn't illegal technically, but is not very nice. Luke off the ropes, going to drop the elbow or a knee. Oh, it drops the knee. And then drop kick to get the Batten Twins back on track. Pinfall. Two count, but foot on the ropes. So this is kind of the classic match that the sheep herders were great. Young babyface tag team that looked really good. Luke gets a clothesline in and takes advantage. Butch takes over. Butch Miller was trained by the old Wigan guys who managed to make it to New Zealand, funnily enough. He's a badass shooter. <laughs> and then went to Canada to wrestle for Stu Hart. Of course he did. Um, but yeah, Butch is uh, uh, a tough old competitor. And they work really well as heels. They're far more entertaining to watch than the Bushwhackers ever were, obviously. Band twins ringing rings around them again. More drop kicks. Two heads brought together, and the bands are taking over their corner. So, things are slowed down for pace again, and we've got more like young men, even children, like doing the up yours arm motion and flipping birds and throwing things at the sheep herders. Band twins tag out. And Luke decides to start things off for his match, for his team. Oh, no, Luke and Butch together. Butch has, Butch has decided to, to, to get things going again. Luke doesn't know which corner he's in, as per usual. <laughs> and also, I think they were supposed to be in different corners, because uh, it was better for TV. Uh, but whatever, we got started. So we're having a crack at this now again. So... Really kind of odd watching the Bushwhackers doing the arm swinging thing when they're heels. It's really weird. It's like, what are they reacting to? When they're baby faces, it makes sense. Like, they're doing something to get the kids involved and stir people up. When they're heels, it doesn't make any, any sense at all. So then, Luke backs one of the Bantwins into the corner. Irish whip. I don't know. He's just going to bite him. Okay. Oh, big face fall of her. Face rake. And now he's whipping him into the ropes, comes back off the ropes, so misses the clothesline. Uh, leapfrog. Knee to the stomach, knee to the stomach. And Irish whip. And a drop kick. There's a lot of drop kicks in this match. This is a drop kick heavy effort. Luke kicks out again. And now back on the feet, mid ring. We've got a side headlock from one of the Batten twins. Elbows into the ribcage from Luke Williams. And a big chop to the back of the head. 
Yeah, the sheep herders were a big draw in world class. Uh, sorry, uh, world wrestling council in Puerto Rico. They were multi-time tag team champions a couple of years before this, and uh, they had quite a presence down there, uh, and had some big matches and some big and violent matches. They didn't mind getting into the the violence really throughout their run as a tag team, and it kind of shows they're kind of made for Puerto Rico in that in that sense. Big burly heel heel tag team. Not too big and rely on brawling. Luke misses with a second rope drop kick. Sorry, a headbutt. And another drop kick. It's almost like that's the only move they know. Now, you can't hear it because obviously you're listening to me commentate. But you will hear the Batten Twins uh, slowly turn heel throughout the commentary of this particular video. Mainly because they kind of done all they could as a, as a babyface team. And just kind of switched heel. Or actually on the commentary of this tape, so it would maybe a couple of months down the line. I'm not sure how it played out in real time, but certainly the Batten Twins uh, just slowly turned heel throughout the commentary, which is the reason why it's terrible commentary, because they're trying to establish themselves as baby faces to start with, and then establish themselves as heels halfway through. So it's a mess. <laughs> Somebody wanted their head looking out before pouring this out into the world, but there you go. Uh, things have settled down. Luke's in a wrist lock. And one of the Batten Twins is twisting hard. They swap over. And, of course, no tag. This is the classic Southern Wrestling thing. Uh, it's usually a heel thing or a baby face thing. Where someone claps behind and they get a free tag. Luke's now in a headlock. Handful of hair to try and get out of the headlock. And off the ropes. Butch is going to pull the leg. And he pulls the leg successfully. And now the sheep herders can lay a hurting on that particular Batten brother. Luke driving some heavy knees into that chest, uh, using the bottom rope as momentum, uh, or to help with the momentum. There's a lot of stuff going on in this match. Oh, there is Luke promoting the championship belt to the noggin of one of the Batten twins. Before Luke rolls him over for a pinfall attempt with a two count with a foot on the rope. I, that looks like a small steak. An uncooked steak, but a small steak nonetheless. Kind of reminds me of like back in the German uh, tournament days, the fans used to leave gifts. Luke spitting at his opponent to rail up his opponents. This is all classic babyface stuff. And of course, throwing him over the top rope, which in a NWA territory in World Wrestling Council is a mistake, is a is a disqual automatic disqualification. Now at this point, WWC had left the NWA, if I can remember correctly. They were no, they well no, they were an NWA affiliate because, like I said, most of the talent was a crossover from what was happening in uh, the uh, the Crockett promotions, and we'll see in the next matchup uh, a quite interesting matchup that was all Crockett. Um, Butch is now dragging one of the Batten twins back up to ringside. Smashing his face into the into the to the ring. This is a classic babyface and heel type matchup. It works really really well, um, and works really well on this particular level. Uh, you know, it just kind of showcases how good the sheep herders were at getting heat. They were excellent at getting heat, and the Bat Twins were an excellent babyface tag team. And it shows that back in the day, there were so many more places to make a living. Batten Twin is now on the floor, screaming and 
half unconscious, waiting to be dragged back to the ring as Butch riles up the crowd. I don't know why the arms were like that. I don't know what the deal is. I don't know where it comes from. Like I said, as a babyface, I can understand it, but as a heel, it just doesn't make any sense. Banter is selling the back now as Luke pulls him into the ring. Whips him into the ropes. Goes for back body drop, sunset flip. Can't get him over, gets him over. Butch comes in to make the save on the two count. And now one of the other Batman twin is chasing Butch outside of the ring. For reasons best known to himself, Luke punts his opponent into his own partner's corner. Butch takes over. Irish whip into the ropes. Knee to the stomach. That is another classic Bushwhackers big move. Used to see that in uh, TV matches all the time. Big forearms to the back of the head. Big forearms to the back. Using the ropes for leverage. And then Butch gets cut off with a boot to the stomach. And a head to the top rope turnbuckle. Comes back with a rake of the face. Kind of like want Butch to win this, to be honest with you. Butch and, Butch and um, Luke were... Hard-working souls, and I, I kind of want them. I'm kind of rooting for them in this one because the Batman twins are like they—they're horrible people. They were really believable, believable heels. Luke standing directly in front of the hard camera, always a, a good thing for a, a many a veteran to do. <laughs> he comes in, tags out, tags in, drops a big knee, and he's back on top, going for the pinfall. Referee's not looking. I don't understand why his brother was telling him that his opponent was being cut. His brother's opponent was being covered. That makes no sense. Surely you should be trying to keep the referee tied up as long as you possibly can to buy him more time. Luca's got a chin lock, and now we go into the long grind of the match. Um, Luke has some interesting tattoos from a time when tattoos weren't, you know, prevalent in the industry. He was actually promoted as a bit of a pretty boy when he was younger. <laughs> uh, but there you go it, uh, I, what, what can you do rocking back and forth on the sleeper hole I haven't seen that in a long while Oh, it's all bringing back memories of the 80s to me back to getting back to his feet punch to the stomach now we're just throwing fists we're down to brass tacks now you know the end of the match is coming big body slam Luke going up to the second rope Big elbow, headbutt, sorry, and he misses the big headbutt. Very big dynamite diving headbutt. Luke was actually quite a mover back in the day before he was kind of like uh, insured to be like a, a non-mover in the WWE. And now we have the hot tag and in we come and swing in for the fences with both wrestlers. Luke and Butch bang their heads together. Punches to the midsection. Luke whips one of the Bratton twins into the corner. Goes up for a big power slam. Who reverses it? Sleep hold from one of the Batman twins. Butch comes in and breaks it up. And now we've got everybody in the ring. As the Batman twins throw Luke and Butch together. But it ends up with the Batman twin hitting Luke. <clears throat> and now we're down to Butch and Luke and one of the Batman twins. Who's fighting off both. And there is debris flying to the ring at an alarming rate of knots, which will tell you how much the sheep herders were hated. Double drop kick puts both Butch and Luke down. 
as fists start to get flying. Butch comes back in. Does the man never die? Luke comes off the ropes with a big tackle on a knee and the illegal Baton Twin comes in with a top crossbody and knocks down the referee at the same time in a classic uh, problem for the Baton Twins. Butch clam clabs the flag and drives it into the back of the neck of the Baton Twins. And Luke rolls him over. The referee comes to and counts to three, which after all of what they've done, it doesn't seem to make any logical sense. However, shortly, in a second, something to save the grace of everybody involved will come along as another referee comes out of the back and will actually divorce, disqualify the sheep herders for using the flag and give the titles back to the fabulous Batten Twins. This has been a great match. This is a lot of fun. But it's, again, it's old school stuff. Nothing particularly great about it. But the sheep herders were all excellent heels and the Batten Twins were excellent baby faces. And just the amount of detritus being thrown into the ring and how angry the referee is, it's worth it for the price of admission alone. Just to watch that. That was excellent work. I love that matchup. I hope you're enjoying this show as you watch along with me. Uh, so there's the Bant Twins. They were pretty good and perhaps should have gone further. But maybe we're happy being top dogs in the small territories. The army have managed to actually accompany the sheep herders back. So that's that match. And we'll take a short break there. When I say break for, you know, break, I mean break for me because, like, my voice... Isn't, isn't lasting well. Well, next up, we've got a classic American matchup, but two, two guys who didn't really get to wrestle each other very often. Chief Wahoo McDaniel of uh, the famous New York Jets in the 1970s and dangerous Danny Spivey in a glorious pair of paddle pants uh, wrestling each other. Danny Spivey, again, just the, 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 the classic mullet, blonde mullet, big heel in the 1980s and 90s, was of course Big Babyface as part of the new American Express with Mike Rotunda in the WWE after Barry Windham left. Um, Chief Wahoo McDaniel, uh, excellent wrestler, big name in the Carolinas of course as a pro wrestler and back in the day he would wrestle in his off season when away from uh, the New York Jets. Wahoo was a big name in New York um, because he was the first person to not have his second name on his jersey it was Wahoo. Um, the announcer in New York used to uh, announce the number of tackles. He was a defensive player. So if he tackled somebody, uh, the announcer in the stadium would go, and on the tackle, guess who? And the crowd would shout, Wahoo! Uh, there was rumours, according to Ric Flair, that the reason why he was let go was because he was becoming too big a name. And <laughs> Joe Namath was the big name in New York. You know, Broadway Joe the guy that won the Super Bowl for the Jets and brought respectability to the American Football League. And that was important. But Wahoo was a big star in the Carolinas, no doubt. Spivey, again, full of former football player, big in size, short on knees. His knees did not last long in the industry very well. Uh, but his size is impressive. Six foot ten wrestler. Didn't really get the 
respect he deserved out of the generation of wrestlers like The Undertaker, Sid Vicious, Danny Spivey, uh, Mike Awesome to an extent, those 90s six foot ten guys who kind of had it all as far as size and power was concerned, maybe not so much with wrestling skills, though Spivey was a much better than most. He's a good standard of brawler. He was big in all Japan. Giant Baba loved him. He tagged with uh, Stan Hansen on a regular basis. He did well in WCW in numerous runs, but never really had a big run with a singles championship. Um, and he's going into a wrist lock at the minute. Uh, Wahoo laying in some big chops. Big, big chops. Um, you know, Wahoo McDaniel was like... Getting chopped by Wahoo McDaniel was was a an experience as Greg Valentine <laughs> described it. It's like so much scar tissue on Greg Valentine's chest. It's like armor plating, and it's basically because of Ric Flair and Wahoo McDaniel's thumping his bare hands into his chest and breaking his blood vessels on a regular basis uh, back in the nineteen seventies. As Wahoo was the baby face, and and Valentine was the heel. Danny Spivey laying boots in, arguing with the referee and pushing the referee out of the way. But Rico referees don't tend to let things go, actually. They're pretty much on top of things. Spivey just now standing on Wahoo McDaniel's head. <laughs> this is an interesting watch, because it is kind of like where the wrestling scene's going in the 1990s. Spivey is the future. And Wahoo is very much definitely the past. You know, He's a guy who's had his moment in the sun, but he's still a main event star. He's still a big name. Never won the world championship, of course. Um was a true Native American, did like his golf, but he earned a lot of money in the wrestling industry. Um, him and Big Cat Ernie Ladd were both big names. Danny laying in some big fists has actually split Wahoo open, and this is the first blood we'll see on this particular card. And this, is, this isn't this is really a big grudge match, it's just a match between two big names, which is, you know, the, there'd be a lot of local promotion on this, but there wouldn't be a big TV angle because they probably wouldn't have them on TV. They wouldn't have the availability of them to be on TV. So this is an interesting take on what's going on with this particular wrestling. Spivey's got a big chin lock in deep. Wahoo is uh, bleeding. You notice if you're watching this match, Wahoo is the one who's kind of like ring generally. He has more experience than Spivey. Um, and he certainly knows how to turn the crowd on and off when he needs to. And the selling here is excellent. He's bleeding, he's in the chin lock, he can't go anywhere. It give, it's putting a load of heat onto Spivey. It's exactly what he needs to do. McDaniels knows exactly how to get somebody over. And this is pretty much the job he's been charged with here. His job is to get Spivey over. Even if Spivey loses, he has to have a dominant performance against an older wrestler. And McDaniels, Wahoo McDaniels knew and understood that, and he wanted to make stars. He was quite well known for taking people like Greg Valentine and Ric Flair under his wing, certainly Ricky Steamboat. Um, you know, there were things that Wahoo did that were Wahoo's way and what Wahoo wanted to do. You may notice in this match that Wahoo was never whipped into the ropes once, because Wahoo didn't like running the ropes. You run the ropes. I'm old. There's <laughs> a lot of the things he was uh, quite concerned about. Big elbow into the midsection for Danny Spivey. He just managed to yank down and put pressure onto that um, reverse chin lock. I do like that as well. He didn't pull the hair. He just cinched down hard on it. That's kind of even more heelish if you're just that good, just that strong. That's a nice way of telling the story. Spivey uh, was having great matches in all Japan at the time, around this time. Like I said, 
not tagging with Stan Hansen a little bit after this because um, Hansen was tagging with Teddy Biossi for about a year before he left for the WWE uh, after Bruzy Brody and then Spivey came along after that. They got to the final of the World Tag uh, um, Strongest Determination World Tag League in 1991, I think it was, where they faced Doc and Gordy in the final as the Miracle Violence Connection began their big run of dominance that really got them over as the best tag team in the world at the time. Uh, Spivey goes in for a cover, but it was an excellent match in the final. And Spivey really was, he wasn't injured beyond repair at this point, but certainly the big, tall, athletic guys had serious issues with their knees because they're carrying a lot of weight and a lot of tall weight. The human knee isn't supposed to carry that much weight for a long period of time. Wahoo on top now, he's found a chink of daylight and he's whipping into Danny Spivey. Whips him into the ropes, another big chop. And an Irish whip across the ring. Straight to the corner post and a big boot to the face. Wahoo's going to have to come up with a plan B. Danny Spivey finds a rope to help lean on, but the referee catches him and pulls him away from the ropes. And Spivey is mad with the referee, as you can possibly imagine, for cheating. As Wahoo manages to come down, roll him up. Four, eight, one, two, three. And that's how Wahoo McDanny with a bleeding face gets a plea for over Spivey, which of course, no finishes involved which means everybody goes home happy in the self-respect and facing saving face stakes. We're about halfway through this card. We're an hour in. We've still got another hour to go, and we've still got some big matches to come. So I hope you're listening to me. Uh, sorry, I, mean, I, hope you, so I do hope you're listening to me. I hope you're listening to enjoy, enjoying listening to this Wahoo there with a big bloody face as we take on another break. Cheeky Star versus Invader is our next matchup. So then we're back with Cheeky Star versus Invader 3. Now, Invader 3 was not Invader 2, who obviously was the person who killed Bruiser Brody. He was, uh, well, there's not an awful lot about him, really. He hasn't got a Wikipedia page, though. He was a fairly competitive wrestler. Cheeky Star, though, um, was a big name in Puerto Rico. He's been wrestling since 1975. Um, came out of Stampede Wrestling. Uh, moved down to Southwest Championship Wrestling, but had big runs in the World Wrestling Council between 85 and 91, 95 and 97, 98 and 20, 2000 and 2002, 2002, up until the present day. Um, and he started off with his uh, big runs running with the Invaders. Uh, El Invader 1 was the first person he turned on. Um, and then worked uh, with Invader 2 and turned on him <laughs> uh, uh, and also became a manager um, and one of the big names in management in Puerto Rico and this particular match came with Invader 3 being nearly permanently injured by one of his charges, Ray Gonzalez. Now it starts off with this particular promo where Chiki Star invites in invites one El Medico, one of the medics, to come on his show and be a guest. And it actually turns out that it's uh, Invader 3. He attacks him with a small plank of wood in a really strong angle. It's, it's actually set in the middle of the ring in a baseball arena of all places. Uh, as you see whilst you're watching this, Medico comes to the ring in an ambulance. <laughs> 
Um, and then he puts his own mask on, his proper Invader 3 mask. And then he starts attacking Cheeky Star. And that's where this match particularly came from. And his interesting approach to have the baby face attack the heel like this. Cheeky Star's sports shop was the angle. It was very much like a, a, a WWC version of uh, the Brother Love Show. And this was done on an arena show, believe it or not. So it was a big, big angle. And then he gets back into, oh, it's not an ambulance, it's just a car. And he's driven away <laughs> with tinted glass. It's uh, an intro, and Cheeky Star sells like death as the heels come out to, to help um, Cheeky Star and check that it is okay. Bobby Jagers and Dan Crawford there, along with some other people as well, to see if the, the heel is okay. Which is a nice twist, because normally you see the baby faces come in. And then we have a doctor. You, you can tell he's wearing a doctor is because he's wearing a white cloak and... Uh, yeah, you've got some medical people there as well. Um, but it's interesting. And also he has a massive cut at the back of his head, which kind of like makes you wonder, like, why why would you blade at the back of the head? He didn't get hit in the back of the head. Um, and he clearly requires stitches. Um, this was a bloody angle. But also it's so dangerous to muck about with... Um, to muck about with injuries and there's like the reference the doctor is just kind of like brogging about with his fingers in a cut as are the wrestlers this is like the worst thing you can possibly do trimming hair so he can stitch up his head in the middle of the ring whilst there is blood everywhere on presumably a family wrestling show with children in the audience just what you need to be doing this is just like the worst thing these days it's like wouldn't happen these days for very good medical reasons because it's a really stupid idea. I'm no doctor, but I'm pretty sure that if you go sticking your bare unwashed hands in a cut, someone's not going to be particularly well off. This is, by the way, obviously 1988. This is the days of AIDS and like the big HIV scares. You know, obviously you should protect yourself from HIV uh, these days as well. And this is the reason why WWE matches are stopped under such circumstances. They finally get down to the head and there's just blood everywhere. This is ridiculous. I mean, I've seen this two or three times now, but it just doesn't get any better. I'm like watching this particular angle, they they, they look a state. Uh, Bobby Jaggers was a World Wrestling Council regular. He was there for quite some time. And of course, Dan Crawford would go on to greater fame in all Japan wrestling, tagging with Doug Lef uh, as uh, tugging with Doug Furness or Phil Lafon, as he was known as in the WWE, as the Canam Express. But at the time, it was Puerto Rico for him, and he had a quite successful tag team with Boggy Jaggers, which we will see more of later on this show. And looking at the back of his mess, it's just a mess. Oh, now we're going to actually try and wipe some blood away. I would have thought you did that first. Now, we'll go back to present day, and Cheeky Star makes his way to the ring. Bleach blonde hair and a black moustache, which is, of course, the way to go. Um, Cheeky Star is actually not a bad wrestler. He's certainly charismatic as a heel. He's got that swagger about him. Uh, and he's wrestling Invader 3. And Invader 3 starts by just jumping him before the bell and then tacking him with something. <laughs> this is a... This is a, I don't know what it is. It looks like a large piece of wood, to be honest with you, as far as I can tell. Uh, Invader 3 has a championship belt, which I believe is the North American Championship. I'm not quite sure. We're outside in an arena as well. This is the second half of the show. We've moved to the outside portion of this particular show whilst they set up the main event on the indoors. I'm wondering if there's any extra matches. Tricky Star has gone out to the floor and is uh, wandering around ringside. 
and he's already split open within the first 30 seconds of the match starting. Of course he is. <laughs> but where are we? Uh, there's also it's, it's a slightly different order. Um, Cheeky Star pinned Invader 3 uh, because this match came after the Ricky Santana match. Um, so a Wahoo McDaniel Dunn's by we should have come after this in the particular night. But this is the VHS version. That's why they kind of like change things around. There was a load of matches that on this particular card that were in different places that they should have been. One that isn't on here was Buddy Landell, the Caribbean heavyweight champion. He beat TNT. Uh, Savio Vega, actually, is who will become Savio Vega, who's an interesting character all by himself and deserves a troopany show just for the, his contributions to professional wrestling, really, uh, which was not on this video release. So there's three or four matches that are not on the video release. I don't know why, uh, but this was a VHS release. And it's very stressed that it's to an American audience. You know, this is in English for a start, which is unusual for WEC. Uh, they were trying to find a new audience and it just goes to show the depth that they're trying to get to with this with wrestling in the 1980s wrestling was hot it was Hulk Hogan it was Ric Flair wrestling wherever you was was hot Carlos Colon was just as big a name in his area as Ric Flair was in the south and Hulk Hogan was in the north so this was this was big time wrestling and this this was arenas on a weekly basis every week on a tiny island in the Caribbean uh, Cheeky Star takes over again with a low blow to kind of square things up on his behalf. Star getting back to his feet and starts throwing fists at everybody. He's kind of like got that Terry Funk thing going on about him, Cheeky Star. He's very accomplished as a pro wrestler. Uh, he's got his timing. He's right there. Big atomic drop. And he's selling so well, but so is Invader 3. Again, blood everywhere in this. We've kind of like reached the point where everything from this point on is going to be violent. Really, really, really violent. And that's kind of where we're at. Big fist to the forehead. Uh, they're not pulling punches in this, but everything matters. They're going a lot slower than you'd expect. The pace has kind of dropped off because they're having these big violent. They're making everything count. You know, big swings, big hits with a fist, a big headbutt from Invader 3. And Ricky Star, Cheeky Star is kind of like on his face and trying to come back and now begging off. Everything is big and pantomime for this big audience. And Invader 3 throwing in some chops and some right hands. And now an Irish whip into the corner. Cheeky comes out like he's been shot. This Cheeky Star, I want to see more Cheeky Star matches. He's a brilliant worker and a brilliant heel, or Rudos, I guess, as we would say. He begs off at the right time. He's got an interesting way of telling stories. And it's it's hard to wrestle like this. It's also hard on your body. He's already bleeding a mess already before we started. And if you're a main event wrestler that kind of relies on this style, you're going to bleed an awful lot. And that can lead to all sorts of health issues. But that's a different thing. As a wrestler, he's excellent. And his selling is absolutely exceptional. He's just taken a boot to the midsection and fell back like a felled tree. And he's not selling in a realistic style. He's selling in a dramatic style. Invader 3 now going after the cut and thrashing into it, biting at it, punching it. It's it's a bloody mess, to be honest with you. There are other matches on this card that are reportedly more violent than this, but this is the most dramatic one. This is the one that grabs your attention because it's just so in-your-face violent. Invader 3 smiling very happily, 
now that he's managed to knock out uh, Cheeky Star onto his onto his back. Picks him up, big knee to the midsection. Big on knees in Puerto Rico in the 1980s. Knees, knee lifts were the thing. They were the in thing to have. Big fist to the forehead. Picking up Cheeky Star again. Irish whip. Comes off with a cloak with a punch straight to the forehead. Just whips him in and punches him straight in the forehead. And he's bleeding everywhere. There's really a weird thing happening outside the ring. So this is in a baseball stadium. And it's like tarpaulins down all the way around the ring. So you don't get dirt and mud into the ring. But it just looks like, I think they're brown tarpaulins. Which is a bit silly really. Because they just look like dirt. But they're not. They are actually tarpaulins. Which is a bit weird. Uh, Cheeky Stars rolls himself back into the ring to beat the count. I don't know why he bothered. He'd been better off on the floor. To be honest with you. He's begging off Invader 3. Apologising for everything he's ever said to him, to the man. And Invader just keeps going in with those boots. And the fans around ringside are kind of like, you know, I think they don't, they, they know they see this violence all the time, but their kind of eyes are transfixed on what's going on in the ring. Cheeky Star takes advantage of uh, Invader 3's confidence, pulls his tights and pulls him into the, a bare steel post and now continues to kick him out of the ring. This is good stuff. This is the kind of thing you want in a big grudge match. It feels like a big grudge match. I barely know either of these wrestlers but I can tell they hate each other. This works really, really well. And it plays on stories that had already been long established. Invader 3 trying to get back into the ring now. Cheeky Star picks him up and suplexes him over the top rope. But it's reversed and there's a pinfall. And his Cheeky Star's feet are on the rope. There's just subtleties to this. There's just nice ways of telling the story. Oh, big right hand. And Cheeky Star falls back into the corner. And Cheeky Star saves face by being the guy who never gives up. That way, if you want him to turn in face, you can do. Further down the line, he's proved himself as a wrestler within the company. There's lots you can do with Cheeky Star after this match. Even though he looks a mess. <laughs> the big story here is like, how great he looks in defeat because the camera's not left him. Not Invader 3 is bad, but he's not the story. You know, you can be like the heel and be always the story, even if even if you lose a championship. The story here is about Cheeky Star and his intestinal fortitude. He sure he keeps begging off from Invader 3, but he hasn't run away. He keeps trying to figure out a way of winning this match, or at least surviving in this match. He's now kind of like brought between the ropes as Invader 3 grabs his head and pulls him into the middle rope, um, and then pulls him by the tires. Invader 3 is not wrestling as a babyface, he's wrestling as a, as a heel, but this is a, an impressive match from him as well, but I'm kind of concentrating on Cheeky Star because I'm fascinated with the guy, I want to know what else he's going to do, because he's the charismatic one of the two, he's the draw behind the matchup, you're paying money to see him get beaten up. And to be honest, he's beaten me up quite well. He's kind of like climbing up the ropes, and I don't think any of that is like, you know, put on. He's genuinely that shattered. He gets a low blow in on Invader 3 when the referee doesn't see it. He covers him. Oh, no. He goes straight into the mount and starts just punching him and chopping him in the chest. He realizes he has to get some offense in if he wants to get out of this alive, and he just starts using his rib cage. He notices a couple of bad bumps on his ribs. And that's the story he's going with. He keeps telling that ribcage and the knees go in as well. 
This feels like Ricky Starr is desperate. He wants to win this match. And don't just win this match. Just survive this match by any means necessary. And it kind of feels like that. And that's really what you kind of want in this kind of main event style caliber match. It's difficult to stand out in this environment without going over the top. But they have certainly tried to manage it here. Cheeky Star, Invader uh, 3 with a big boot to the stomach. Cheeky Star with a, another big boot back. And Cheeky Star starts to build in confidence as his blood starts to dry up. He gets whipped into the ropes. Big knee to Invader. Invader's out on the floor. And Cheeky Star goes to recover. And there's a kick out. He wants a faster count. He wants this match over with. He doesn't feel cowardly towards this match. He thinks he can beat Invader or else he wouldn't have signed on for it to start with. He's tried to cheat his way out. He's tried to cajole his way out. Now he actually has to get down to doing it. He's got a wrist lock and wrist control. They're throwing fists back and forth. Now throwing him into the ropes. Invader 3 does the big chop and throws his opponent into the ropes. Big back body drop. The rings seem fairly stiff as well. They're a bit like my closer to Mexican rings. They're not big and bump friendly at all. Two count and a kick out. A more fist to the face. Irish whip into the corner. And he comes back with a springboard. That is uh, Invader 3. And then roll through. Two count for uh, two count and then back body drop back drop driver from cheeky star and kick out on two from invader three this is so like building a pace nicely this is the best story on the card so far I'm really impressed with this matchup and then big whip into the corner for cheeky star from Invader 3, who stops on a monkey flip, and Invader 3 bangs his head on the back of the canvas, drops the elbow. One, two, and a pinfall victory for Cheeky Star, as he manages to find his one out, which was an over-enthusiastic uh, monkey climb, which manages to see him take a clean victory in a very, very good matchup. I strongly recommend, even if you don't see the rest of this card, if you're just listening to me for something to listen to, I would strongly recommend you watch this match because it's excellent. It is really well put together and really, really well done. Um, and that's the win. Invader holding the back of his head from the whiplash he got from banging into it. And uh, we, we still have soldiers everywhere. That's the bit I got over. I'm not sure if the police are just militarily kind of like uh, there or just just, you know, there's guys in uniforms with all sorts of pins and all sorts of lapel stuff and there's batons and stuff everywhere. It's bizarre. Well, it wouldn't be the army, would it? Because, like, you know, the army is the US army in Puerto Rico, but certainly, you know, local police do dress up very tough to deal with an awful lot of things, apparently. Unless it's just a private security company, in which case they are a badass private security company. Bit of a replay there as Cheeky Star gets the pinfall on Invader 3. And our next matchup will be Hands of Stone, Ronnie Garvin versus the Iron Sheik. Alright, so where are we? Ronnie Garvin and Iron Sheik. Uh, obviously, Ronnie Garvin was a former NWA heavyweight champion for the world. He beat Ric Flair for the world title and held it for a good three months. And Iron Sheik 
was a former WWF heavyweight champion. And this was before his return to the WWE um, in the early 90s as um, General Adnan or Colonel Mustafa. That was the one. He's singing the Iranian national anthem. And of course, as a follow through from his tag team with Nikolai Volkov, who used to sing the Russian national anthem um, in the very xenophobic tag team of Nikolai Volkov and the Iron Sheik, who were former world tag team champions. Carry the Iranian flag, which doesn't really help. It's it's in Mexico, it's in Puerto Rico, which I suppose is you know it's like it's a melting pot of um, cultural identities. So again, you know, bit of xenophobia, bit of racism. It's the eighties. Kind of take it with a pinch of salt, I suppose. He, he but he, you know he wasn't terrible back then. In eighty eight, he was still like only what four years removed from losing the title to Hogan, or beating Backlund for the title and losing it to, to, to Hogan two or three days later. Garvin, had, the, this is the like the, the battle of the transitional champions. They're out in the baseball stadium again um, with the big phone, and Garvin, uh, sorry, Sheik complains about Garvin, who hasn't even got his towel from around his neck, and attacks him on the run, because obviously he's, he's that kind of guy, and he's now strangling Garvin with his own towel. This is an energetic opener for a start. This is a big name match, and it feels like a big name match between both of them. They were big stars at the time, but like within a year, the Iron Sheik would be on WCW television with no music, working job matches and forgetting how tag matches worked, despite having 25 years of tag experience. Um, he's now strangling Garvin with his own headscarf. But he was fit and he was young and he was still fairly swiftly moving as a wrestler in this particular, you know, era. And still strangling Garvin with his own headscarf. It's an exciting opening though, it sets the it sets the tone for what it's gonna be. It's gonna be a fun romp between two guys who can actually go when they want to. The Sheik's trying to end it early though, by just strangling his opponent and standing on his throat. And giving the larger pure signal to the crowd. Uh, Ronnie gets to his feet and is starting to be less groggy. And then takes a headbutt to uh, the Sheik's loaded, quote-unquote, boot. Big uh, choke in the corner. Not like a MMA choke, he's just actually choking him with his bare hands. Big chops in the corner. And now the comeback starts. Garvin going in with the joke chops. Of course, hands of stone, Ronnie Garvin, laying in right hands. Garvin was a good wrestler. He was kind of a mid-carder, lifelong journeyman. And he was kind of chosen as the, the guy to beat Flair because they needed somebody different. And they wanted someone who could be an everyman. It would feel like the uh, Garvin would prove that any man could beat Flair on any any given day and therefore enhance Flair's draw because Flair had become dominant. He'd been the guy who'd been the champion for so long. It wasn't necessarily exciting to watch him, even though he was a great performer at the time. And they needed an everyman who was able to win the championship and prove that Flair could be beaten. And that was kind of the deal presented to Garvin. You're going to keep the title for a short period of time and we're probably going to put you back on the back burner and job you out when you're done. And that was enough for Garvin. He was happy to say yes because he'd never been in that position 
as a wrestler himself, he was kind of going to be a mid-carder. And after his run was done, he went up to the WWE and had a second major run in a big company. Um, after his time in the usual Southern Independence and his time in WCW, he had that big feud with Greg the Hammer Valentine that completed at Royal Rumble 1990. And then he was back on the journeyman. He had two big runs, which, you know, were big paydays for him. Meanwhile, the Sheik had been everywhere, you know. He'd done everything. Obviously, he's long-term associated with WWE, but he had stints in WCW and the other territories um, uh, throughout the South. He ends up back in the WWE in 1992, I think, 93, as part of Sergeant Slaughter. One of my followers on Twitter is Sergeant Slaughter, by the way. Um, he ends up part of his faction with General Adnan um, and, of course, Sergeant Slaughter. Now, at this point, we've got a big headlock on from the Iron Sheik as he's keeping Garvin in the ring. And Garvin... Looks good in this matchup, actually, as well. We haven't talked much about his wrestling ability, but Garvin was a pretty good, handy, technical wrestler. I mean, he wasn't Ricky Steamboat, but he he knew how to sell. He sells brilliantly for the Iron Sheik in this match, and he knew enough technical wrestling to make it look interesting. Sheik has turned, uh, put um, Garvin into the Tree of Woe, as they say, um, as the referee tries to untangle him and he does a reverse handstand to fall out of it and then Sheik picks him up and Garvin manages to lay in a big chop and the chops keep coming and a headlock from Garvin is whipped off into the ropes big shoulder tackle and they both go down uh, it, it's interesting to watch these two wrestle because it's kind of clash of styles you got the traditional WWE heavyweight versus a, a much more traditional kind of like independent wrestling heavyweight. Um, there is a certain house style to the WWE, which kind of transfers to a lot of their long-termers. Shake is going in for a gut wrench uh, suplex, pulls him over, goes for a pinfall, kick out on two. And Garvin's kind of like a more kind of steady, not, well not steady, slightly faster pace, bigger bumping kind of... Uh, Territory wrestler. And he's got kind of half the camel clutch on. He's got the clutch in the corner, but he hasn't got the legs, the arms over the knees. And Garvin gets to the ropes. And then Garvin pulls out the sheet to the outside of the ring and wraps his knee around the ring post. And then grabs the other leg and pulls the uh, taint, if you will, into the ring post. Um, the sheet does not look happy about this development. Um, and keeps asking the referee for it to stop. Of course, comedy in wrestling, it's always funnier in threes. Hence the reason why the Sheik ends up um, being pulled into the ring post groin first three times. Whip into the ropes for the Sheik, and he's got a headlock on the Sheik. One of Garvin's finishers, he also had the Scorpion Deathlock, and um, of course, big right hands, the hands of stone. Sheik is fading fast. And fading and fading. He's going to be fading for a long time. Slumps him to the floor. But he gets him out too. Goes for the pinfall. And kicks out. With a firm kick out from the Sheik there. Very good. Uh, 
big tail call from Rudy Garvin now has he's kind of lost patience with the Sheik. But this is kind of what the New York, the Puerto Rico fans wanted. They like their big brawls. It's good style for them, especially between two former world champions getting down and dirty and bay moon, as they would say on the commentary of the actual real video, which you don't want to listen to, because they say, Pot night and bay moon on a very regular occurrence, uh, like every other match. Chops in now from Ronnie Garvin. Hands of Stone is getting to work on the chest of the Iron Sheik. Big drop kick, and Sheik bails to the outside. And Ronnie follows him out, which is a very sensible thing to do. It's not particularly dry in this arena either. It does appear to be quite wet. And the ring mats around the side, the tarpaulins of the center, seem to be collecting water. The pair of brawling Garvin now gets on a side headlock and drags him out into the crowd. And tries to... Well, I'm not really sure what he's trying to do. Oh, he's trying to try and run into the ring post. But Garvin ends up going headfirst into the ring post. The Sheik ends up missing a clothesline and hurling himself into the ring post. So one's got a concussion, the other one's got a sore arm, but Garvin manages to get it back into the ring to take the victory over Countout on a 20 count, as that was the count in Puerto Rico at the time. And there's another match from this big hot night in Bayou Moon. I promised I'd never say that because, you know, hot night by Moon! It doesn't sound earth. One of the other matches we did miss on was Kamala, the late Kamala, who so recently just passed away. He also wrestled Jimmy Valiant, who was doing uh, double duty on this uh, particular night. Iron Sheik goes in to beat up Jimmy Garvin at the end of the match, which is kind of the story of the cell, but Garvin manages to fight his way back. He's not putting up with that. He's, he's had enough of the Iron Sheik, and he lays him out with a couple of punches as the Sheik calls it a day and goes to the back. A nice ending uh, for a particularly fun match that pitted two World Heavyweight Championships against each other, which is kind of what you want on these big super cards. As the Iron Sheik walks to the back, and Jimmy Garvin is announced as the winner, we've got a next match, which was actually the main event on the night, but not on this particular show. Miguel Miguelito Perez, or Miguel Perez Jr., and Hurricane Castillo wrestled Bobby Jaggers and Don Crawford in a non-title match, but a hair versus hair match. Uh, Bobby Jaggers was the big uh, American heel in this particular company at the time. And Dan Crawford was his tag team partner. Uh, Castillo and um, Perez Jr. were top-level babyfaces for Puerto Rico. And both, all four of these guys can go. There's a kind of, Bobby Jaggers has kind of a cowboy kind of gimmick. And Dan Crawford is kind of sharing that cowboy gimmick. Jaggers was a big guy. Let's see, what did Bobby Jaggers do? Bobby Jaggers was hangman Bobby Jaggers. Uh, wrestled for a lot in Pacific Northwest and Florida. Um, and was kind of... Uh, you know, he's, he's one of these guys that didn't really catch on in the big companies. Uh, he'd been around since the early 70s um, and started in the Pacific Northwest after a career in the military. Uh, he was an A battery, the 130 plume, the first cavalry in the Vietnam, uh, and fought in battles in Hue, K, Sasha, and Aishu Valley and the Tet Offensive. Um, and then started, and because he was from the Northwest, he started in uh, the territory up there, the NWA territory. Uh, did a time in San Francisco for Louisiana for Bill Watts. 
but became really productive in around about 1977 until around this time period. Uh, he was pretty active for WWC through this time period um, and also wrestled for Jim Crockett Promotions. He was a, he was a good work all-round working heel. He had a natural opponent in Dusty Rhodes. And this match is already open and we're already into the crowd. We're already onto the playing surface and the baby faces are taking it to the heels. Dan Crawford, like we said, probably more famous for his run with Phil LaFon or uh, Dan Crawford, as he was known um, in All Japan Pro Wrestling. And this match is really quite something for violence. Um, Uh, going further and further into the crowd more brawling as it goes out we're getting people thrown into generators people are about to be piled driven onto generators this is this is health and safetyless wrestling to be honest with you big power slam onto the power generator that must have hurt a lot and the fact that it's rained means that no one can keep their footing because they're wearing wrestling boots with no grip whatsoever because they don't want to damage their opponents, obviously, too much. We're finally making it back to the ring as Dan Crawford is shaking himself off and is being pulled up to the side. And now we're going to have a regular tag team match. This is the bit that doesn't sit well with me, right? This is a no DQ match. It's a hair versus hair death match. That's fine. Have no problem with that. But then why are people having to tag in and out? Surely you could just like beat the hell out of people because that's a no disqualification match. But no, we're going to go back into corners. Uh, we're going to have a regular wrestling tag team wrestling match even though there are no rules. Which seems somewhat bizarre to me, if you ask me. Um... Next up, we've got... We have uh, Castillo Jr. in with Bobby Jaggers. They've slowed the pace down an awful lot as Don Crawford keeps complaining to the crowd. Uh, Miguel Perez is on the on the apron, patiently waiting for his tag in. And Jaggers starts to use his side to dominate the smaller wrestler, but doesn't get it his own way. Castillo backs off Jaggers into his own corner, who tags in Crawford or. Well, confers with Crawford and then tags in Crawford. In the ultimate heel bully move. Because that's what Jagger's character was. He was a bully. Big knee to the stomach and Crawford starts in big swings. He looks so good, Don Crawford. Him, as Phil Lafon, of course, with Doug Furness, they were like the consummate team of speed. They had the power and the size but they were really, really good wrestlers. They had such a, a strong kind of style of wrestling that was heavily influenced by the British Bulldogs, even though they weren't particularly great friends. Um, and had, But they had some classic matches together in All Japan. They were lighter, they could move, but they had good wrestling skill. But they had power as well, you know. And Crawford is a well-built bloke too. He is kind of... And he's got a good heel characteristics and good heel mannerisms as well. Ideal for this crowd. Because 
Puerto Rico is a big territory. Everything's big events, big nights. They're wrestling in front of big, big crowds. You've got to pantomime everything to make it work. Castillo and Crawford back in, collar and elbow tie up. Castillo gets a headlock. Perez is walking on the outside of the ring back and forth. And Perez is tagged in. Double whip in, leapfrog, leapfrog, another leapfrog, and a double hip toss as Crawford goes across the ring. Also slightly weird watching this from behind uh, a baseball screen to ensure that, which is like normally there to stop uh, balls going into the crowd from pitches and hitting um, pitches or flying off on fly balls, but it actually here helps because it stops the wrestlers from being attacked by all sorts of horrible and nasty things being thrown from the crowd. Perez now has got Crawford in the corner, Irish whip, Forward first, another Canadian, well, kind of Canadian trade. Crawford was an American. It was Furnace that was, uh, well, no, Crawford, yeah, Crawford is the, the Canadian. Went face first, and he did grow up in Stampede, um, had all sorts of run-ins with Billy Robinson. That's another kind of Bret Hart-style maneuver. Uh, and Crawford's still wrestling. He's still in there. Uh, Perez kind of, like, backs him up into the corner, waiting for the big hill zone. Big Don Cruffer spinning heel kick, which is kind of his thing. Big knee coming up from Bobby Jaggers. Whipped him into it. Well, reversed. And Jaggers is absolutely sorry for Cruffer's misfortune. Big right hand. And tag in Castillo Jr. Castillo Jr. is the smallest of the four wrestlers. And oof, nice big, big double tackle. But this is such well-organized tag team wrestling. Proper double teams, proper sense of, uh, like, you know, big match feel to this. Everyone's taking it very seriously. Big, big, big moves. That's a big suplex. Even the small guy in Castillo is exceptionally strong and showing off to be exceptionally strong. Pull on the bottom rope after a two count, pulling the leg in to try again. I don't understand why more wrestlers don't this. Just because it didn't work once doesn't mean it's not going to work twice. Okay, he's pulled the leg. He's now pulling the arm in. Making sure he can't reach the ropes. So he's going to try it again. And he kicked out on one this time. But I like that kind of storytelling. If it works, keep going at it. Don't just give up on it. Uh, tag in for Perez as he puts a big fist into the midsection of uh, Don Crawford. Crawford pushes uh, Mifrez into the ropes, but doesn't really come up anything with it. Crawford just starts throwing hands. And he's backed into his corner, and Bobby Jaggers is taking over with his show baby whip. Uh, it's a no disqualification match. He can do what he wants, which I don't, I don't understand is why haven't he done this before? <laughs> why have a regular wrestling bit in the middle of this? Big shoulder tackle, jumping shoulder tackle from Don Crawford. And a power, power running power slam set up, which was Doug Furness's finished maneuver, if I remember correctly. Big running power slam. Painful, but Castillo pulls him off. Not enough wear down here. Now we've got big sidewalk slam. Dan Crawford was so good at this. As a heel, as a baby face, he could wrestle so well. Big slap to the face, spit at the crowd, 
And now we're going into the, the closing stretch with the big manoeuvres, or so Crawford thinks. Goes again for that slide, but Perez spins through. Big German suplex. They're big heavyweights and they're throwing each other around. This is so good. Castillo comes in to protect his partner who had a pinfall cover. Crawford's back on his feet and he's going after Perez. He throws him out of the ring when the referee's not looking. Doesn't really matter because it's a no disqualification match. Castillo is sent back to the outside of the ring and Perez is on the floor. Yeah, it's just the bit that annoys me about watching this match. It's no DQ. Why would you have this in a DQ match? Why, 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 why? Just why? Why? But there you go. Okay, Castillo is looking after Perez. He's taken quite a, a tumble to the floor after being overthrown by the top rope. But again, it didn't really matter because it, it's no DQ. It's a hair versus hair match. Castillo rolls Perez back in the ring. Crawford goes up for the pile for power driver, big power bomb, big thunder fire power drum. Knees first, rolls through for the pinfall on the cradle. But Castillo kicks him off before he has chance to the hill. The referee has chance to count it. Should have counted it a lot quicker than that though. But there you go. And now Jagers and Crawford come in together, big back elbows. Crawford stumps in the stomachs and can't help himself before he leaves and gets out of the ring. And Jagers drops a knee. Jagger's drops an elbow and goes for a cover. It's a very lackadaisical cover. And he kicks out and Perez kicks out. Now we've got to a double-handed reverse chin lock and things will slow down even further. Uh, Jagger's is bleach blonde. This is kind of like the standard thing in the 80s. But you can tell that they're probably losing because he, he hasn't bothered bleaching his hair out again. His roots are deadly shown, which is the ultimate heel move, obviously in one sense, but also it is like kind of telegraphs the end of this matchup if you're not careful. Chin lock from Jaggers now as he holds close to his opponent. Castillo is impatiently waiting on the outside. The production for this is really good. You've got three or four camera sets, you've got crowd coverage, you've got plenty of coverage going all over the, the arena, plenty of different angles. In fact, you've got two hard cams. You've got one at the left of the ring and one center ring. Um, you can see future people who are involved in Puerto Rican wrestling down the years who are around, like Victor Quinez, um, who would have involvement for WWC before starting IWA. Now Castillo tags in and Crawford tags in. So the two hot young men are in. Castillo Irish whip and a big, big clothesline. Castillo is really, really good in this. Another Irish whip. Back body drop, a really high back body drop. Bobby Jaggers comes in and interferes. Perez, Perez comes in to even up the score. And he is body dropped over the top rope, which of course is a disqualification. And the referee sees it. However, it is no DQ in this matchup, so it's not a disqualification. Now Jaggers and Crawford have Castillo cornered and to themselves. Heart attack clothesline. As set up by Dan Crawford. And again, Stampy graduate. Referee takes a long time to count it though because it was illegal and he's chastising the partner as they go out of the ring. And then Perez comes in and makes you say. Crawford comes in, crying, flying crossbody. Jagers makes the saves this time. Crawford comes in with Castillo again. Big hands, big hands. They are throwing leather if they were wearing gloves. Come on. 
with a back body drop over the top rope from Castillo and two uh, Dan Crawford. Crawford gets back to the ring apron and Castillo wraps his head, wraps his arm around his body and pulls him back in for a suplex. It's got muddy on the floor and you're starting to see mud stains upon the ring and on the wrestlers as they fall on the floor or as you didn't before earlier in the night. Big elbow drop from uh, uh, Miguel Perez there. Spinning heel kick from Crawford. Small package. Chagas comes in and makes a save. Perez screaming for a tag. He gets one and he goes in against Crawford. Laying in right hands. Whip into the ropes. Powered body slam. A really good powered body slam. You don't see many like that, boy. More like a Northern Lights bomb. Castillo, Jager comes in to save the same. Castillo comes in to take over on Jagger's. Castillo is whipped into the ropes. Leapfrog. And he jumps down on the monkey flip and just lands on his opponent. And then he takes a pinfall. Even though he was completely illegal. And so was Crawford. But there you go. These things happen in Puerto Rico. The babyfaces come into the ring to make sure that their heel counterparts do not go anywhere. And from nowhere, Miguel Perez seems to have a pair of hair clippers and starts cutting the hair of Bobby Jaggers. But bear in mind this is a non-title match, the titles are not on the line, which is probably sensible on Jaggers and Croppat's part. <laughs> Masked wrestlers everywhere holding people still so they can cut and trim off the hair of their fallen opponents. Jiggers is taking the haircut first, which is of course was a big thing for baby faces back in the 80s. 80s. We nearly had a hair versus hair match at Payback with uh, Sonia Deville and Mandy Rose, and I'd be intrigued as to what would have happened with that. The stipulation matches are there, and this is what it's there for. Um, they're now starting to cut Crawford's hair as Perez has taken the scissors, and Jaggers looks like a state. Honestly, it looks terrible. He's just like cut off his mullet. So now they're all having a turn. They found another pair of scissors and all the baby faces are now uh, cutting off the hair of the losers for the umpteenth time because, you know, that's how they roll. This is this vengeance. It's what Puerto Rico wrestling's made of is vengeance. Vengeance and bad dreams. <laughs> uh, yeah. And this is pretty much this match. There's all sorts of people wanting to see what people look like bald, to be honest. But souvenirs have been taken. Haircuts have been handed out. Bobby Jaggers gets the worst of it. Don Crawford seems to be getting a short back inside. There isn't an awful lot of Don Crawford's hair to start with, to be honest with you. Why he would put it up in a hair versus hair match? Well, I suppose because there isn't very much of it and he's going to lose a lot. Crawford having his mullet cut short is uh, a, a thing of joy. It's not a big mullet. It's not a glorious mullet like Ricky Santana's. But just big handfuls of air in a pair of scissors. It's, it's a wonderful thing <laughs> in a hair versus hair match. Bobby Jagger's still selling at the end of the match. Uh, gentleman in a balaclava. Invader 3 holding people, rolling down with Castillo. And they're balding. Um, Dan Crawford, who would come back with black hair in North Japan about a year later. So I'll tell you how like successful Crawford has been. More haircuts. No one got any shears for this, like proper barber's shears, no. Might have been an idea if you want to shave the head of your opponent. But no, they've been let go of that. 
They lost half their hair. They're hugging each other, so this is the classic heel move. Hugging each other so they don't get embarrassed by their lack of hair. And then they're going to roll out and head to the back. Um, they still have issues with uh, Perez and, of course, with uh, Castillo. But they decided to live another day and head to the back as Perez chases after them. And uh, Jagers has the show baby whip with him. Uh, and, yeah, this was really fun. It's a fun, fun matchup. But we have yet got our main event to go, which is a stunner, an absolute stunner in one of the most violent matches you're ever likely to see. Uh, but for now, there is your tag team champions, as they were back there in the day. That Well, not your tag team champions, but certainly champions on this particular night, as they didn't lose their hair. And we finally get to our main event of the evening, which is Hercules Alaya versus Carlos Colon. Carlos Colon is a legend in, obviously, in um, wrestling in Puerto Rico. Of course, WWE Hall of Famer. He's been around, he was born in 1948, so he's literally 82, no, 72, not 72 years old. Uh, he took over Capital Sports. Uh, in 1973, uh, after a, a long career abroad, uh, he started in uh, the early 60s um, and started in Boston, up and down the East Coast. Um, and his first match was against Bobo Brazil, where he was paid $15 <laughs> and spent a lot of time in the WWF uh, and then worked into Canada, but eventually moved back to the Puerto Rico region in the early 1970s um, and was a, a big star for WWC you know he was uh, the pure white meat baby face he was um, over like Rover he was willing to do the violent matches that the Puerto Rican fans demanded of their main event stars his forehead is like taffy you know it's held together with scar tissue from all those violent barbed wire matches and Hercules Alaya is a brilliant monster heel. He's much taller than Colon. He is stronger. He is well built. And here we are in this fire match, which for the physics of the whole situation is a regular wrestling ring with wire, not barbed wire, just wire around the outside of the ring. Um, well, the wire is torches, which are laced in there, which are soaked in, I guess, kerosene, and then set fire to. Simple, really, and looks incredibly dangerous. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight little bundles of torch. Eight torches on each strand. There's two strands around this ring, so that's 32, 64 strands of fire as it goes all the way around the ring. And the smoke inhalation issues going off as we get started. The fans are throwing stuff at Elia and obviously hitting Cole on as well. And they're having this heated wrestling match. And it's difficult to light as well. Obviously, flames break up on video. That doesn't help either. And being whipped into the fire doesn't seem as bad as saying being whipped into barbed wire because it's not hurting you. But the heat, you're definitely going to feel. There is a good chance of getting heavy burns in a match like this. They have been doing this style of match for a, a long night. And it kind of tagged into the Anniversario nickname Hot Night in Bayern Moon because it was going to be hot. It was September the 1st, middle of summer or tail end of summer. And, of course, the, the ring was on fire. That was, that was the kind of irony of it all. Of course, it's going to be a hot night in Bayern Moon. There, there's just fire everywhere. This match was literally on fire. 
Of course, it would be the influence for the Inferno match uh, between Kane and uh, The Undertaker some years later. But that was a bit more controllable. <laughs> this, nah, just a regular fire match. This is stuff on fire. It's like bailing wire um, steel, like mechanics wire around the ring. And in the middle of it, they're just having kind of a regular brawly Puerto Rican style wrestling match. Colon is on the bottom at the moment. Away is on top. He's really driving home his advantage. And he's hitting him with something. I have no idea what. It's like, dude, it's a no DQ match. You can do anything you like. And you've picked up a small object from outside the ring. And now why the referee is like admonishing him for breaking the rules. When this fire outside of the ring doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Uh, the referee seems quite unperturbed by the fact that the ring is essentially on fire and it is some dude's poor dude's job to walk around squirting lighter fluid onto each of these particular um, torches to make sure they keep burning for the duration of the match. Um, and they're burning like a good one. I don't know how they did the maths to figure out how long they needed it to burn for, but... It was good. At this stage in his career, Colon is not completely scarred up in the forehead. Uh, but he's certainly got a lot of scars on his forehead. Um, and they're doing a lot of good work of teasing with the fire as well. Like trying to get Colon's face very, very close to it. And Elia is, you know, such a good heel. He just looks menacing and mean. He's got the body technique and he's got the wrestling style, a dominant hardcore, like, I am a boss kind of wrestler. Big, big clotheslines. Everything's big moves. He's not a wrestling scientist by any stretch of the imagination, but he's good at what he does. And again, it's surprising he didn't go further than he did. He's got the ideal body size and body weight for a WWE run in this particular era. But again, English probably not his strongest point of view and his ability to promo is obviously going to be affected by that. Uh, in a market that was still very regionally orientated at the time. But in Puerto Rico, he's an excellent main event level star. You also notice not so much reliance on the masks in Puerto Rico. People's own personalities were really important. Colon is coming on top. He gives a low blow to Alaya and uh, cartwheels his way to celebrate and then starts throwing fists and starts throwing forearms and just generally biting and headbutting his heel opponent, which is usually the heel's job, but there you go. We'll go with that. Another big headbutt. Off the ropes and a big right hand to the forehead. Colin could have technically wrestled very well. He beat Ric Flair for the NWA Heavyweight Championship purely on the grounds that Ric didn't want to cause a riot. <laughs> I was quite happy to lose to Carlos Colon. They had a bit of a dodgy finish to get out of it so that he could pick the belt up and the NWA never recognised it. But he did beat Ric Flair for the Heavyweight Championship in Puerto Rico because... You know, there is no point in like you know having a riot. Uh, a wire is now bleeding and is being pushed over into the fire, though not very close to the fire, but close enough to make an impression. And just sticking a liar's hand in the fire, which is just like that's a bit of a bastard move, to be honest with you, because Colon is now just cheating. <laughs> Simple as that. He's just cheating. Elias bleeding, he's split between the forehead. Colon is picking his shots as he wanders around the ring. Headbutts and big fists as the fire slowly dies out. He drops an elbow. Drops another elbow. 
and picks up Alaya with a body slam and then starts to climb the ropes. When the rope with when the ring's on fire, climbing the ropes isn't the best. He misses with a leg drop, which you kind of expected, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, and is now selling his knee. A liar is no uh, Hercules. A liar has got a figure four leg lock, which is a big finisher for him. As does Carlos Colon. His finisher is the figure four leg lock as well. But a liar is going after Colon's knee, cracking him with the kicks. And more kicks to the knee. As the fires slowly die out. And the embers are more what's going on rather than actual full-on fire than what we had to start with. Because that was ludicrous what we had to start with. I think we've got probably enough. We're still getting stuff thrown in the ring as well. That's the bit that just never stops coming. It, there's, a bit, there's a bit of it, but it just never ever stops coming. Elaya now making contact on the ankle with big foot drops on the ankle. Just stomping away. And now is the time to go for the figure four. But Colon pulls him out of the way, looking for a small package, but he couldn't quite do it. Elia comes up to his feet and goes back to that knee, trying to kick the knee out from underneath him. Elia seems to have run out of ideas at this point. He's just doing what uh, Colon did to him, trying to put Colon's face into the fire. <laughs> just realising there's one closer to his face. Oh, I bet she used that then, really, am I? But he can't get his face close enough. Obviously, they're not going to let each other's faces get anywhere near close enough to the fire because they're not stupid. They've been at this for a long while. There's a safe way to have hardcore matches. And Colon and Elia are both very, very adept at it. But this is good storytelling. It goes for that thrill of the danger that's involved. is kicking down on the Colon's knee, who eventually gives way as more things are thrown at Elia. He's got the figure four reversal on, and now he's got the figure four on. Well, but Colon immediately turns through it, and Elia grabs the ropes for the reverse figure four, which obviously puts the pressure in kayfabe on your opponent's knee. Colon's trying to shake off his knee. Elia is up to his feet, takes a big swing, and the knee drop figure four, Alaric Flair. Colon pulls up, big yanks on the knee, drops an elbow into the knee joint. A yank and another elbow into the knee joint. One more big elbow drop to the knee joint. The fans absolutely erupting for this. And slaps on the figure four, the more traditional figure four. And holds the all in tight. The fans race to their feet. The fires burn around ringside. And Elia is holding on as long as he can. As long as he can. Screaming, begging looking for a rope, bleeding profusely as the fires slowly ebb away around the ringside, but it looks like an inevitable victory, but it's a slow, torturous end to the match. He grabs the referee's trousers in any attempt to get some help. He flatly refuses to give in to Carlos Colon if he can possibly help it. Looking to turn the hole, but he can't get it over. Colon turns it back again, and then he tries turning it the other way. As more lighter fluid is put on the pads to make it fire up again. He's been in that hole now for two minutes, and the bell goes as the referee calls the match up, as Alea has to give up. But Colin doesn't let go. 
This is white baby face, you know, cheats. <laughs> Keeps holds on after the bell. Gets the referee out of the way so they can keep the hold on for even longer. And this is how your, your pay-per-view, as it was then back then, or a VHS would follow out with a layer bleeding and Carlos Colon holding onto a figure four for as long as humanly possible to try and damage his opponent, the big baby face. Eventually the referee gets them untied, as you can see there, and Colon is the winner, but he doesn't want to leave it at that. The referee makes sure that he doesn't get in the way. Uh, oh well, doesn't make sure Colin doesn't attack Hercules Alaya anymore. As the uh, <clears throat> fire marshal, yes, there's actually a fire officer there, an official fire officer, who is putting out the fires with a fire extinguisher. And then Carlos Colon sticks on another figure four leg lock. Uh, running the risk of getting disqualified in a match he's already won. I think it's possibly to distract from the fact that the fire marshal is having to put the fire out so there isn't panic around the building. Uh, but there's Carlos Colon trying to destroy Hercules Alaya's career, which he didn't do, because Hercules Alaya had a much stronger career on Puerto Rico and various other places as well. But there is your winner, Carlos Colon, on the hot night in Bay Moon, which wasn't really the main event. However, it was an exceptional professional wrestling card and very much a product of the time. Why is bleeding so much? There's so much blood on this card and there's so much violence on this card. It does showcase what Puerto Rico was all about in the 1980s. It was blood and guts. That was the wrestling that was there. That was the way they made their money and that was the way that they put things together. And, you know, it, it was interesting watching this card and certainly interesting seeing how this wrestling developed. The production values are excellent. The commentary is dreadful. I will point that out to you now. Uh, like I said, if you want to listen to my commentary, it's one of the reasons why I did it. Um, but yeah, that's the Troopany show for this week. I hope you've kind of enjoyed it. And we did something different this week just to try and do different things and see what you appreciate. If you don't want me to ever do this again, please tell me. Um, <laughs> but thank you very much for listening to the Troopany show today. My name is James Troopany. You can find me at, true, at Sheriff Lone Star on twitter you can find the show at troopany show on twitter you can find us on facebook the troopany show and you can find us on um a patreon where you can keep the troopany show free forever for everyone thank you for listening today i truly appreciate it and we'll see you soon take care bye <laughs>